I was playing Last of Us, uh, I always had to end a little bit early before going to bed than I usually do, and then I'd read a really happy book so that I could I could sleep well. <laughs> Welcome to the Metacast Roundtable by Navic. And today is a special episode because not only do we have one, but we have two people from Navic today. Um, so we're going to be skipping intros. We're joined by Aaron Bush, who is a co-founder of Navic, and Fuzzy Itani, who's an investor at Forerunner Ventures and content lead at Navic. So if you love your newsletters, you have Fuzzy to thank for them because he's managing it. And you're smiling, Fuzzy. Thanks, Maria. Yeah, and I just want to give a huge shout out to Aaron. He announced he's full-time Navic on Monday, which is just a huge milestone for us. Um, we're so excited. I'm excited too. Yeah, really happy that it's official. Took a while to get here, but we got a lot to build. So just very excited to be working with all of you and a ton of other people um, in an expanded way. I hear your uh, first agenda as full-time at Navic is the exciting task of choosing accounting software. This is true. There are a lot of details that you just need to put together when you start a company and we've been, you know, turning Navic into a C Corp. And so, you know, dealing with all the legalities and all the accounting and, you know, figuring out payroll, HR software, you know, all of the fun stuff of starting a company is you know, just the things that you got to do when you start. Um, but I'm also just as excited to move beyond that and start, you know, putting more of my mind power on, you know, actual video games, and, you know, figuring out what's going on in the industry and, you know, sharing that in lots and lots of ways that we do. But it's true. Lots of accounting software thinking right now. <laughs> You're oh, really geeking out over this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've never done it before. I mean, it's kind of interesting, but yeah. Yeah, I've been to a, a conference about technology for accounting software. It, it can get quite interesting, actually. Um, moving on to the exciting topics <laughs> we're talking about today, which is not accounting software. Uh, we're, there's a lot of new games out there that we're excited about. So we're going to spend some time just talking about what we're playing and what, what, what we're looking forward to playing if we haven't started doing so. We're also going to talk about Playtika's 2022 strategy and Steam Deck's release. Um, so yeah, we'll just jump jump right in with Aaron. What are you playing? What's new? What's exciting you in the games world? Well, I feel like I'm drowning right now because there's so much to prove to, to just choose from. And I always feel like I'm, I'm the kind of person that like has the, uh, what's it, the like paralysis by analysis mindset. And so I'll literally, you know, just be like, staring at my computer, then staring at, you know, my PS5 and then looking at my phone, just being like, there's like three games I want to play here, two over here and like, you know, four over here. And it just takes a while to even figure it out. But right now I I am enjoying Dying Light 2, which came out in early February. It's sort of like, um, you know, it's like a Fallout like world, but with zombies and with the Assassin's Creed like parkour thrown in. Um, and it's just it's been pretty fun. And, you know, it's taken me a while to get through because, you know, I started it at the beginning of February. And then as February has gone on, like 
there <laughs> there have just been so many other games that have come out that I want to play, right? There's, you know, Horizon Forbidden West, Elden Ring, you know, Destiny 2 expansion came out and, you know, a new Total War game and, you know, new games coming to Xbox Game Pass. And I I feel like I'm drowning, but that's a really fantastic place to be in this industry. It's really been, February was like an insane month for, for games. That was just console and PC too. So um feeling really happy right now. Is Dying Light scary? I've never played the first one. Uh, not really. Um, I would say it's not, it's, I don't know if you've played like The Last of Us. Um, I would say yeah. it's similar to that um, in terms of a scare level. So maybe it'll have like moments and you got to go in like dark buildings and maybe something will like come up behind you that you don't see mm-hmm. and you'll have a little bit of moment of like, oh crap, got to deal with that thing that came out of nowhere that's terrifying. Uh, but it's not, it's not a horror game by any means. You're right. When I was playing Last of Us, uh, I always had to end a little bit early before going to bed than I usually do. And then I'd read a really happy book so that I could I could sleep well. <laughs> yeah, so it still might be good to have a happy book on the side if you choose to play this game. But it's been a lot of fun. And also, I was just looking. Um, this game is made by Techland, which I just like didn't know much about. They just kind of they're like one of the, they're just kind of like a smaller studio, not part of any like bigger conglomerate. But they've just, you know, they regularly, you know, you know, every couple of years or so, you know, develop and put out like a new cool game like this. And so, you know, as I was just looking down the list of all the, you know, the games that have published there, there are a few in there. I'm like, yeah, like that, that's a studio that I could see at some point maybe getting scooped up by, you know, one of the bigger players as the consolidation happens. Don't know if that'll happen with Techland, but I'm like, yeah, I could see, you know, a Sony like wanting this kind of game to be, um, you know, more PlayStation first or something like that. Um, so anyways, yeah, been lots of fun, but can't wait to move on to other things too. Are you, do you play Destiny 2 a lot? No, I, I don't. I used to play the first Destiny song, but I never, never quite got into Destiny 2. But I know you're oh, a big okay, fan, well. Maria. Have you been into <laughs> the Witch Queen? Um, no, no, yeah. I, I turned from my clan so this is why I was excited by this idea, because maybe we could create a raiding party of Namek Ooh. on Destiny 2. But yeah, just do some team building of trying to survive as a friendship through a raid. We need to figure um, out some way to play about, together. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to ask uh, Fuzzy, what, what have you been playing? That's new. I'm still I'm still reeling that um, Aaron flexed the PS5 on us, so that's where, I, that's where I'm still at. My wife um, got it for me. She's the the real uh, flex here. Yeah, there you go. So I'm much more of a backlog type player. I sort of have things on deck. I buy them and I don't play them until I have some free time in a couple months. Um, so. Lately, still on the Halo Infinite grind, I know that like DAUs for that has dropped precipitously and I've seen it in my multiplayer lobbies. But uh, the other one that I've, I've been playing a lot is Wild Rift. Um, I, I'm just like really trying to get into mobile gaming. My roommate is a big Riot fan, so we've been playing together and it's been really fun. You know, I used to play this solo, but it's totally changed my experience to like have someone right next to me. It makes it easier. It makes it a lot more fun. And then the third game is... Quirtle. <laughs> um, it's Wordle times four all simultaneously, but I think it's like nine tries instead of six. So I've really been enjoying the challenge of 
taken Wordle up a notch, um, non-New York Times style. <laughs> I, I can't picture this. You have to share it. <laughs> so yeah, I can, I'll, I'll put it in I the chat check, later. Check it out. <laughs> it's great. It's like you guess, you guess for four words at the same time, but each guess counts toward your total guesses. So you're trying to figure out four words simultaneously. Okay, maybe, maybe not. I know with like Elden Ring out and Horizon out, I'm still on the Wordle grind. It's kind of embarrassing, <laughs> but I do enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear that Manu is playing Elden Ring and he might join the next round table. So we may get a firsthand view on the first survival of Elden Ring. I think I'm just cool. like generally impressed by people who can play Souls games and like deal with that frustration and just like continue to like play after a death or after multiple deaths. Um, it's like it really takes a lot of tenacity in my mind that I don't have. <laughs> I finished Bloodborne. That was the only Souls game that I, I finished. And since then, I haven't been able to play another Souls game. I just can't face it again the grind there was this boss that i fought about 40 times before i managed to pass it was it was long but i am looking forward to to elden ring um on part of the horizon forbidden west release i thought it was quite interesting that i think around half of the sales were were digital and i was wondering if aaron do you have any thoughts about like do you think that this is a trend we're going to keep seeing um an increase of digital sales and changes to, to player behavior? Yeah, I mean, I think this isn't new. This is probably you could have looked 10 years ago and I've started to see that, yeah, digital is becoming a thing. It's already stealing market share. In a few years, it's going to be half. And one day, you know, it's going to be 100%. And that still might be a ways away to completely get, you know, remove disk from the equation, another generation or two of, of consoles. And, you know, big franchises like Call of Duty, uh, the biggest franchises still tend to have, you know, the largest percentage of which of their sales are sold disc wise. But it's yeah, I mean, this is this is just a continuation of what's been going on for a really long time. And these digital first platforms, you know, like Sony and Xbox now with their storefronts and Steam and everyone now. Um, yeah, they're, they're just going to continue to. Um, try to push people towards digital um, because it's also a better business for them. They're like digital games are higher margin. And when you buy it through their platform, um, they take their cut that they don't get if you go buy it, you know, at GameStop or, you know, whatever, Amazon, whatever other website. So, yeah, uh, what's going on makes a lot of sense to me. And I think um, this we're going to see this continuation over the next decade still. Yeah, if I might add, anecdotally, I live with two other guys and we share an Xbox here, so space is quite limited. Um, we're always downloading games off of Xbox Game Pass. And I definitely see a future where Microsoft starts to upsell people on cloud services storage, um, kind of like what iCloud does. People really love to have their own libraries. You know, when I when I log into Steam, sometimes I just like like looking through the games and like seeing what I want to play in the catalog that I've sort of built up over the years. And I think that's going to be the case for Xbox. Um, games are just so big now. <laughs> like when we wanted to download Elden Ring, we had to let go of a couple of our favorites, unfortunately. Um, yeah, that's why I had to uninstall Warzone. 
It was just getting <laughs> too much. I, I couldn't yeah, play Warzone's anything else apart from that. It's a big L for Activision. <laughs> yeah, that game's a beast. But also, like, I mean, with this whole digital trend thing, too, I mean, you can look in other mediums um, and see that um, when when the when content turns digital, it also just has an effect on like the business model um, uh, of how it's sold. And so, uh, I mean, games will continue to be sold on a one-on-one basis, but I don't think it's a coincidence that you start to see, you know, as these platforms like Xbox and PlayStation, they like really put their storefront and their software front and center, that they're also shifting into more types of subscription models, which at minimum is something like PlayStation Plus, where you just pay for, um, you know, access to online services, and it comes with you know a bundle of a handful of games. You get you know a couple of free games a month. So all the way on the the Game Pass side, where they're leaning all the way into digital and putting everything behind a single you know price point per month, and um, that's not possible in a physical world, but it's made possible in a digital world. And so in the same way that we're going to see market share continue to shift over to just digital sales in general, I think we're also going to see market share shift away from single purchases more towards subscriptions. There will be both, but it's just, you know, the market share trends that I think we'll continue to see. And that's interesting. I think that's a good thing. And it's ultimately good for consumers too. Yeah, Aaron, if I... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, you go, Fuzzy. If If I might add, like, I remember when the shift happened for music and sort of piracy started declining as a result of moving to subscription. Not to say that it still doesn't exist, but that it decreased heavily. And Maria, you and I were talking about like secondhand, second market sales on like GameStop or something and what that meant for games. And I definitely feel like uh, when the games industry is calculating their financials, they're like definitely accounting for how many of their games get sold on the second market. And so this is definitely a welcome change for them. While it might disrupt other business models like GameStop, they're really excited about not having those lost sales and having people just like purchase directly from them or purchase through a subscription. Yes, I, I don't. I think this is the reason why I don't see discs disappearing entirely. It's just so important to gaining accessibility to playing console games if you don't have a lot of funds to put towards it. Because you know, I don't know. Maybe a year or so after a game has been released, you can you can buy it at a really low pli- price secondhand. And if that no longer exists, I-, I do wonder if we're going to lose accessibility to console games for people who can't do that. I would argue that we might even see increased accessibility as you move towards a subscription model, because it's a lot cheaper to buy something like Xbox Game Pass for fifteen dollars a month that gives you access to a, an enormous library um, compared to buying, you know, each game, $60, $70 each. Um, and so I, yeah, I mean, I I think accessibility is going to increase. I also think that as, you know, free to play continues to take hold or, you know, even free to start in some circumstances that that has been the biggest, you know, boon for accessible, uh, you know, just making games more accessible to people. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you take away secondary markets, it remo- removes a price point for single sale purchases and just sales for people who want to recoup some capital that they they put into buying a ton of games. Um, but again, I think we've seen this in other industries and it works out 
okay in the end. We're just sort of in the the awkward middle stage of that transition. And it wouldn't surprise me if we see um, you know companies have moves that we don't quite predict that kind of spin up their own business models and behind the technologies that they're building that continue to evolve the landscape. Yeah, I think I think one of my favorite points to that, Aaron, is Nintendo's strategy of like nostalgia games and how they're just not building a subscription service for people to access some of their old games. But it seems like a no-brainer because there's such high demand for it. Nintendo is one of those few companies where I can imagine physical game sales still outpacing digital game sales. Not to say that that's the case, but there's so much brand affinity for them that I think like people really love opening their Switch case and showcasing all the physical game cartridges they have versus the Xbox CDs, which nobody really cares about. And so I think like we'll probably see a little bit of a difference across consoles, across companies when it comes to this at maybe a slower rate of change. Yeah, actually something interesting happened the other day where I was speaking with my neighbor about a game I was playing. And when I finished it, I, I offered him the game of, oh, you can go and play it. And he said, oh, I, I, don't ha- I have a discless PS5, so I can't play it. And it was the first time that dawned on me that that community feeling of sharing your game, it's gone. You can't do that anymore. Um, it's the thought that counts, Maria. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I hope he, he thought the same. So um, last question on on this topic. Do you think this is a strategy that was set by both Sony and Xbox maybe a decade ago where they decided we need to start planting the seeds of shifting players into buying and feeling the, the ease of buying a digital copy so that they could increase their margins over time? I don't think it was necessarily, you know, a hand-picked strategy from one or two companies. It was just more like a natural transition that most consumers and essentially all companies can get behind because it and in some ways is easier for consumers and in basically all ways it's better for companies in the value chain except for whoever the retailer is that's getting cut out. Um so I think it was inevitable just from the economics of how it would change the game and how it just plugs into where technology is moving for all entertainment. But yeah, I don't think it was a big scheme by anyone. <laughs> yeah, definitely no, definitely not a scheme. I, I definitely think they took a look at their balance sheets and were like, wow, we've lost hundreds of millions of dollars not being digital. Like, Let's think about how we can recoup that money. And that led to that business model shift. And, you know, I think consumer behavior changes are really important to call out to during the pandemic. It was just like harder to get physical game sales. We're having supply chain issues now. I'm not sure if that's affecting physical game sales, but like it very well could. And so I think like there's more of an acceptance now for people to just download things. Internet speed, solid state drives now are in such a like good place for people to like have a good games experience. And I think that's definitely a contributing factor to what we're seeing today. Hmm. Cool. Uh, thanks, for that. I think we'll just move on to Playtika's 2022 strategy. And um, they're a household name in mobile free-to-play. And they did an IPO last year in January. And I believe Navic did a report at the time. So I was wondering, Aaron, if you could let us know what, what changed since then have any of the predictions from the IPO come true? 
Yeah, so Manu and I, we took a look at this company. I guess it was over a year ago at this point. And basically, at the time, the conclusion that we came to was, yeah, Playtique is a good company. It's a decent company. It has strong, profitable roots in the casino genre. And it's made pretty good early inroads into the the casual genre, mainly through M&A of a handful of teams like Wooga. Um, and it was just a company that made good money and it had strong LTVs compared to competitors. So it made sense. Like there was a reason why this company was going public and why it was going public at a $10 billion valuation or so at the time. Um, but also at the time, the question and where we were hesitant was about growth, uh, which is obviously really important to your value when you trade publicly and especially when you when you IPO. And typically when companies IPO, they need to make sure that they like really nail their first year as to maintain confidence um, in the market. And we had some questions. We, I mean, we said the the casino market is only so big and they probably don't have that much more upside there. The casual market did have higher upside for them, but we were unsure about um, Playtake's abilities to launch successful new casual games developed in-house. And then even though they seem to have a pretty strong tech stack through Boost, we were a bit nervous about the post-IDFA world and the uncertain effect that that would have on their ability to do user acquisition. And then, you know, lastly, on the M&A side, we knew that Playtika would continue to pursue more M&A, but M&A was getting more competitive and expensive. And even though the company was about to raise money, it was coming public um, with a lot of debt. So at the time, 60% of their operating profit, uh, which is, you know, after you take out all of the cost of marketing and R&D and the, you know, the cost to make your product, um, you know, 60% of what was left was going to paying interest expenses, which is a very high percentage for a business. So we were questioning, you know, their true flexibility and ability to make great deals that would continue to regularly move the needle for them. Um, and fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, we pretty much nailed it at a high level and we can dig into to more details of of where they are now and how the you know the finances are trending now um, and just games going on but you know for many of those reasons Platika's growth engine just isn't as strong as probably anyone wants it to be and they definitely aren't at a place that they probably wanted to be a year ago when they IPO they they have had some bright spots um, and growing some new games here and there, but if you kind of look as a whole, they're over the past couple of years they've struggled to to grow their daily active users. Um, and if you can't do that, even though you're trying to launch a bunch of new games, it's going to be hard to to continue growing at high rates that the market wanted to see you do when when you start going public. So, in a nutshell, that's sort of what happened over the past year compared to what we first thought when we when we looked at the at the IPO filings. Was there anything about uh, their 2021 results that, that surprised you? Uh, you said that the results were as you had expected when you analyzed the IPO. Was there anything that surprised you though? Um, I mean, I guess I would say like, I'm not overthinking the specific numbers too much. I mean, if you look at the numbers and I'll, I'll just race through some of this cause it can be dry, but you know, in the, for the full year, they grew revenue about 9%. Um, they had decent margins, but the casino part of their portfolio was down a little bit and the casual part was up. And a lot of that is because they have games that 
are growing. Part of it is because of acquisitions that are clicking into place. Um, but again, across all of that, their active users are down and they've basically had to kind of fight the IDFA um, negative trend to, to um, figure out how to better monetize the users that they do have, which is what has led to their growth. Um, and, you know, really like, I don't want to like overthink, you know, current growth rates or current margin profiles or anything like that. Really, the bottom line for me is that they didn't grow as well as they wanted to. And they and part of that is because they came to market um, already somewhat tapped out on their most important category, casino, and they came more financially limited just by having a ton of debt. So it was just harder for them to make those moves at a time when the market was changing. Um, like how you acquire customers in the first place, which is what they, which is the one thing they really needed to nail to, um, to you know, truly outperform. So, um, I mean, that's really kind of my bottom line. Um, they did acquire another company called Redecor this Redecor this past quarter, which um, I don't know too much about it, but they, but I don't think it's you know technically a game. It's more like game adjacent it's more like a decorating app that has more like gamified components and so it kind of makes me wonder if they're gonna take more of an app loving twist and you know be willing to support other types of apps that still might have gamified elements that they can plug into their tech stack and find ways to succeed um, um, but I'm also not necessarily a, a huge fan of the lack of focus I think that also shows um, that what they are focused on maybe isn't entirely what they want to double, triple down on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, those are my my general thoughts. Of course, the elephant in the room, which we can talk more about, is because of a lot of that, they're putting themselves up maybe for sale, which is, you know, screw everything else I just said. That's really the headline here. Um, but those are my, yeah, my thoughts. Can we talk about that. that a little bit? Yeah. Good <laughs> Do we see this happen in this space often where someone announces in like, a very acquisitive market that they're up for sale. Like, what does that say? It says, <laughs> it says that nobody wants to buy us. Like, I guess I'm not really understanding where Playtika is, is coming from and like why they would do this. You know, we, we saw like some major acquisitions happen in January for billions and billions of dollars. This company is valued at like $7 billion right now. So down 4 billion from its 11 billion high. And like, they're not finding a buyer. So I guess someone internally is saying something's wrong and someone externally is saying this company maybe isn't the right type of company we want to acquire. And I think that like says a lot about the market conditions at the moment. Um, you know, our friends at Deconstructor of Fun had a really great casino uh, deep dive. They're saying something like Slotomania, which is, Playtika's biggest game. It accounts for $70 million. The year-over-year -year downloads were up 70%, but that didn't reflect in their revenues, um, which is like quite worrisome. The casino and slot genre is just like hyper competitive at the moment. I think Moon Active is like the leading publisher, but there's just outside influences too of like real money gaming, NFTs, like IDFA, all of these swirling forces are just weighing down on the casino genre because they're, I guess, kind of similar. And it just brings to question like this idea of diversity. Um, Aaron, you were talking about Rita Core, but like 
they just really haven't been able to do anything outside of casino or casual. And so like, what does that mean? Um, just like one last quick note is I was reading that one of their major shareholders wants to sell like 15 to 25% of the company. And I think part of the sell pressure is them just wanting to liquidate their shares and what the negative effect of that might be. And so I think they're just trying to preempt what that might mean for their overall share price by selling the entire company um, and getting rid of those shareholders. These are all assumptions, but I think it really does speak to like the state of the market today on, on this genre and like what type of companies and what type of genres people are looking for. Um, I think then a big question for Playtika is just like an ability to execute outside of the genres that they're already experts in. Yeah, to give them credit. Like what Aaron I mean, was mentioning about. Yeah, um, go, I mean, Aaron. <laughs> they, yeah, I mean, to their credit, like they at one point were really just a casino company and they have made inroads into casual and that has become it's now the majority of their business, I think. And so there's definitely props to give there like they did succeed in diversifying into a second um, genre. But yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this is macro related, as you were saying, Fozzy, like it, like in the casino genre, it doesn't really matter how many downloads you get if you can't really target the whales that are going to be the most important drivers of your revenue. And I don't know the ins and outs of that enough to truly comment on that. But I think there is a lot of that going on in the market right now in general, just as companies are trying to adapt to the post IDFA world. We saw it with Zynga, which sold themselves to take two, probably for somewhat similar underlying reasons. Um, and I think we're going to we're seeing it here. And um, for context, Zynga sold themselves at about a $10 billion valuation, I think, which is around what Playtika would probably go for, too. Um, and so I think I think there are similar undertones going on here. But yeah, I mean, really, like the bottom line of that to me is companies in strong competitive positions with clear growth opportunities don't put themselves up for sale like this. And so if they are, then those underlying assumptions of why you would have gone public in the first place to prove that you have that you have strong competitive advantages and you have um, clear growth opportunities that's been put into question. It also just raises the question of like, OK, you, you want to put throw yourself out there for strategic consideration. What does that even mean and who would even target you? I mean, the, you know, selling the entire company is probably the first thing that comes to mind. But who would be the buyer, right? Take two has its handful, has its hands full. Activision has its hands full. Almost definitely not a console company. Um, it's probably too big for Stillfront and Embracer, which have been hammered recently, along with everybody else in the public markets. Um, it's probably too big for a company like Nexon. I don't even know if that makes any sense. Um, EA, maybe like they their latest big acquisition was glue a while ago and they have a bunch of cash and could probably you know would be interested in the cash flows here and the debt taking on that debt wouldn't be an issue because they have so much cash but um yeah even that is still sort of a question um maybe they even sell off part of their business instead of selling all of it and maybe they want to cash out on what is not growing so they can reorient around what is. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's tricky when you have shareholders that want to get out and it has an impact on your strategy at a time when you just sort of want some patience um, to just get through these times and figure out how to leverage the 
the impressive tech stack that you do have to you know adapt that and work it to your advantage much more. Um, sometimes I feel like um, the market and people wanting to push for these strategic moves are a little short-sighted, but at the same time, I totally understand the trend of consolidation that we're seeing across the industry and how that can make sense. Um, and it wouldn't be shocking if that Playtica wants to move more in that direction. It's just going to be, given their size, really hard to, to pull off, I think. Yeah, the, the last point, Aaron, to, to what you're saying is just people are probably thinking about spending billions of dollars on other companies and not Playtica. And like if they're looking at the market holistically and they want to make a big splash, they'll probably pay a premium for something with a little bit more diversity, with a little bit more console applicability, or just different types of mobile genres that are growing at a higher pace than the casino genre is. Yeah, and typically like they're, you know, like an eight, ten billion dollar company. Like that's the size of company in the market that typically is buying the other companies. They're the acquirers, not the acquirees. Um, and so yeah, when you flip that equation, <laughs> it just gets a lot, a lot harder and your options just become so much more limited. But even if they don't get acquired, because I I don't know, I don't think I would bet that they would. Um, they're still fine. Like they still have solid games that are generating, you know, decent cash flows. It's just that their growth expectations need to be put in check, um, which they already have been by the market to a somewhat large degree. So um, it's okay, whatever happens. Out of curiosity, what do you think changes with how, uh, if, if at all, a game company operates when they do an IPO? How how will this be different if they were acquired versus, you know, being IPO'd? I don't think it really should affect the underlying business decisions too much. It's just extra transparency, and you have extra stakeholders that demand more communication, more handholding. Um, it means like when you're private, your stock price doesn't fly up and down every minute, right? But when you are public, you you sort of have those pressures like you can announce something and then within the next minute you can see, you know, your stock price, you know, rise because you did well or plummet because people don't like what you're talking about. And so um, for some people, that's fine. They can withstand the volatility and they're you know, they communicate well with their employees about it. But for others, um, it's a lot harder to deal with and it puts more pressure to deliver um, quarter to quarter in a way that just wasn't needed or as necessary when they were private. And I think that the pressure is even higher now. The COVID sort of boost that they went public on is like kind of dying down and people are just understanding that like it's a lot harder to grow <laughs> in a post-COVID world. And so I think they're thinking about that sort of pressure of like, what does it mean to have that transparency, to have that COVID pressure, but also like an IPO is a liquidation event. And so people are going to want to start, you know, selling their shares in earnest. And I think that Playtica in specific is probably feeling that sell pressure a little bit more than other companies on the public market right now. Do you think that could affect perhaps the risks that they take in terms of ideation and the prototypes that they might be trying out to to put into the market and validate because they maybe 
feel like they need to get a guaranteed shot? Maybe. I could see, you know, I think there's more necessity on finding games that move the needle in a big way. And I, I, I don't want to speak for them or anyone and saying what that really looks like for them. But I think that that's more important than it's been in a while. And sure, I mean, it could also mean um, we saw it with Zynga when they kind of moved out of just focusing on their forever franchises and bought, uh, what was it, Rolic, which focused on hyper casual and chart boost, which was more like ad tech um, and things like that. And so Zynga responded in a way that was like, all right, well, if the market is changing, then we need to change our focus too. And I could see Playtika doing that a bit. Maybe the redecor acquisition is a small sign of that. I don't want to over extrapolate based on that. Um, but, you know, I mean, they face really similar headwinds as the other big mobile companies. So I could see them trying to think about how to adapt in similar ways. And just in general, like, you know, there's been the conversation about content fortresses that's been going on for uh, a year or two now. I think, uh, you know, from Eric Seifert kind of started that conversation at Mobile Dev Memo. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, the whole idea is that you don't, if you're a giant company, you might not just want to make games, but you might want to own more parts of the underlying infrastructure that supports them, um, whatever whatever that means. And so, you know, Playtika Boost, which is their platform, I think they have like 13, 15 services that help um, basically like automate, monitor, optimize various, you know, user acquisition, backend game operations, product design kind of stuff. So I can see them trying to reinvest more in that direction too, just to continue to bolster their efforts there. Um, but that's more setting the foundation to win bigger with games. But that investing in that doesn't necessarily equate to you making new successful games from scratch, I would say. Mm-hmm. Well, we look forward to seeing what will come throughout this year for, for Playtika. And just very quickly before we move on to Steam Deck, I was wondering, Fozzy, do you have any thoughts about Netflix's acquisition of Next Games? It's hot off the press today. Oh, I didn't see that. Uh, so cool. I So Netflix spends like $13.6 billion on content a year, which is just like this mind-blowing statistic. Uh you could look at Roblox and say they spend like zero dollars on games. That's not obviously not true, but like, you know, you run this like counter UGC strategy to like actual content production um, in house. And so it's really cool to just see that Netflix is reinvesting money into one, building really, really good games teams and two, in house production. Um, you know, I, I'm not really sure how Netflix as a games company is performing at the moment. I think that like they're going to probably struggle going horizontally at first. Um, but like, you know, as they continue to build up a bundle in their subscription offering, I think that we'll probably see a lot more usage on their platform, especially as they, you know, strengthen their IPs through that cross media strategy. And then also, people just like understand that there are now games on Netflix, um, which I don't think like a lot of people do know about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Every day I, I see I like someone hiring a new games person at Netflix. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I mean, I think the, what are you the saying, acquisition... Aaron? Yeah, I was just saying, I think the acquisition probably makes sense. I mean, obviously gaming is still a spec um, at Netflix. It's a tiny, tiny 
minuscule percentage of what they have going on. Um, but it's going to grow over time. And really one of the first steps beyond just initial licensing to, you know, just throw some initial games out there and just learn how people engage, how it should interact on the website and just kind of those just basic early tests. Um, next game kind of makes sense to me because I I think like their their focus has always been on working with more like TV related IP. And so they have, you know, Walking Dead games, a Stranger Things game, which means they've already worked with Netflix. Um, and so I think it's a natural extension um, for them to go focus on the largest TV IP, you know, company uh, in the world. And we'll hopefully, I think it, it'll be a good exit probably hopefully for, for next games. And it'll be a, just another good small step for Netflix as they try to, to scale this up and put, you know, billions and billions of dollars behind it over time. You got to start, got to start small. Um, but these these small moves initially add up and kind of create the foundation for a team that can increasingly execute for you. I played a uh, Stranger Things Puzzle Tales when it first came out, and I, I really enjoyed that game. It was just nice to dive into the world of the retro wave music whilst playing some Match Three. Um, yeah, hopefully we'll keep seeing some good quality games being developed by next games. Yeah, and it makes more sense too, because you know, if you look at the games on Netflix right now, like most of them have like no Netflix IP associated with them. It's like random basketball game where you just swipe to, you know, yeah. get the, the basketball in the hoop and it's like, okay, that that was that. Um but I mean you can imagine just even just like the click through rates of like um people are like, oh, there's a Stranger Things game and they'll probably be 20 times more interested in clicking on that than just random something else um, because it's exactly where it should be posted. And I've, you know, I think, you know, the Netflix homepage is probably like the most powerful, one of the most powerful, you know, quote unquote advertising platforms in the world. And so when you can connect these things together in a way that's very native, then yeah, I think they'll see pretty meaningful engagement improvements over what they have now. I think, um, too, just like one quick note on this is just um, the type of entertainment we'll likely see. And I don't think it's limited to games. You know, Aaron and I have both written about massive interactive live formats. Um, I think I said it wrong, but Miles with Genvid. And then also Portal 1's sort of approach to entertainment these days is not limited to just games. It's like an interactive type of show. And I think we'll probably see that to some degree with Netflix. You know, they sort of straddle the line between passive viewing content and active content. And I think that they'll probably find like a middle middling ground um, that sort of resonates with an audience that they have in a very powerful way. Hmm. And for the last topic of of this roundtable, I'm very excited to talk about Steam Deck's release. So Valve started sending, uh, fulfilling the pre-orders. Uh, I think it's the first come, first served basis uh, as they as they go through their production, and the base version costs three hundred and ninety nine US dollars, and the top end version costs six hundred and forty nine US dollars. That's quite a big price tag. So I was wondering. Aaron, what do you think about Steam Deck? Oh man, well, 
Listen, I'm happy that they're doing it and putting R&D dollars behind it. I think that, you know, we've seen for decades that people want to play games handheld. And obviously, mobile won the day um, for many reasons. Um, But there still are plenty of other games that people would want to play handheld that you can't just play in an app on your phone. Um, And so... I mean, the Switch is the most obvious example, but there are other form factors that can succeed. And, um, you know, having being able to take the games that you already play on PC to handheld and finding a way to make it work does sound interesting. So I'm glad they're doing it. I will say I'm not super optimistic that it's going to be a success. I, you know, I, I pretty strongly think it won't be, actually. And that's just because... As you're saying, Maria, it is pricey. Um, you know, the first edition is just going to be, you know, it's going to be heavy and loud. It's going to be glitchy in some ways. Um, you know, we've seen that it has pretty horrible battery life, only like one and a half, two hours, depending on what you're playing, which kind of puts into question the true portability of it. You know, I can imagine like people wanting to go play on an airplane or something and not really being able to <laughs> because um, they just, or not being able to play it as much as they would want. Um, plus, you know, it doesn't actually support that many games yet. I think they're trying to port a lot of games over. Um, plus, it's just going to not play a lot of non-Steam games that are popular, like um, you know, like the Fortnites of the world, because of you know anti-cheat reasons running on Linux. And then lastly, like um, there are no games that are purpose-built for this device, which is. You know, part of the reason why something like the Switch is so successful is because, um, you know, it has tons of beloved IP and those games are made specifically only for that device. Nothing is made only for Steam Deck, at least yet. Maybe maybe Valve will try to make something in the same way they did with, you know, Half-Life Alyx on their VR platform. But um, yeah, I think for those reasons, I don't see this having too strong of a launch. And if you just look at you know, if you just think through the numbers, um, you know, I think uh, what the Switch has sold over 100 million units starts on the path to something like that. Um, Steam has 120, 130 monthly active users. And so um, even a 5 to 10% attach rate on that 120, 130, you know, probably like best case, you're looking at like 5 to 10 million units, which is just night and day compared to you know, what Switch, the top dog right now at this is. So, um, again, glad they're doing this. I hope it's just a start and they continue to reinvest to improve on it so that it so that it also increases the odds of something like this getting accepted more in the future. But I think as it exists right now, it's just going to be limited in adoption. I think their addressable market is the existing player base of Steam. Um, right. I personally, I, I don't use Steam, and I personally wouldn't invest this amount of money in a in the handheld console. Um, but I was speaking with a couple of friends who have very large Steam libraries, and that was the value that they saw. They're very interested in acquiring one when when they can. It's to go through their backlog of games because Steam has so many sales that you end up picking up a lot of games for cheap, but then you never have time to play it. And so having something like this gives a gives you a different way to play. For example, you want to play in bed or play on the sofa and not be at your at your computer to do so. I agree that I don't I don't see enough value being propositioned for the wider market 
of these type yeah. of devices. Yeah, I think the ideal value proposition is there. Like a lot of people want something like this to exist and to work really well. Um, they just, it's just not there yet. And I mean, it hasn't been that way for, for a long time. Um, and it still might take a while to play out. But really, I guess kind of like, it's not even necessarily just specific to Steam Deck or Valve. But I mean, I do think that there is underlying interest in being able to play a handheld. We see it on Switch. We see it on mobile. Um, even in Master of the Meta this past week, we talked about a company called Backbone, which is a hardware company, a peripheral company. They basically make a controller that you can can attach to your phone. Um, it's to play games like Genshin Impact, Call of Duty Mobile. Um, and, um, you know, what's more interesting there is over time, probably more like cloud gaming and the streaming from you know, Xbox Game Pass and other places to other devices, um, that's going to become more prominent and being able to like play on controller. It's not necessarily going to eat away at, you know, time that people are spending on their Xboxes. It's just another means of providing that type of gamer another means to play and encourage them to spend more time playing those games. So um, I think the hunger is there for mobile and I don't even want to call it mobile gaming, just like handheld gaming. And in the same way that we've seen the form factors change a ton over the past 20 years, I think the next 20 years, we're also going to see the form factors continue to change quite a bit. And this is just more like one stop on the road with the Steam Deck and what Backbone um, is doing. And it's not really the the full end game yet. Fosi, do you have any thoughts on Steam Deck? Yeah, and sorry, my my audio cut off, so apologies if I repeat anything, but I think that the key question or the key point is like where and how you're playing video games. Um, I think Aaron started touching on this too. I think Steam Deck and Backbone and Luna is all a bet on cloud gaming. Um, there's just a lot happening in this space, and I feel like I feel like if you're really interested in these companies and like interested in backing them from a venture perspective, you are making the bet that this is a cloud, that cloud gaming will probably be a thing in the future. And so like when I think about Steam Depth, yeah, it deepens relationships with existing users. It's kind of like a tough to replicate moat with hardware and it sort of like helms a new market, which I think is important. But I, what I really like about it is just like the flexibility and ease of use. Um, you know, they're, they're creating like a modding platform inside it that's like pretty innovative. I think that's just, you know, by virtue of having Linux as their operating system. And then also like this library point that Aaron was mentioning that people just like bringing their Steam libraries with them on the go. And this is just like a new way to do that. So Steam has built hardware in the past. Like they've had Steam Controller, Steam Link, Steam Machine, Steam Index. They've had a lot of hardware. And not a lot of them have been like that successful, but it does sort of show an expertise in like building out hardware, rolling it to a general public, and then like executing against that. And I think like while this is an expensive price point, there will be a niche audience that will want to use it. And I think like opening up that market to one, your power users and two people who like don't have a PC but might be on the go, nomads, whatever, is just like a decent strategy. I don't think it's going to outpace Switch sales to any degree, but it'll get people more engaged with the Steam marketplace, and that's the most important thing. Yeah, it's just a question of, are they going to get enough 
traction to justify continue continuing to support it and investing more R&D money behind it. Because uh, a project like this, the goal is not to make money really on the hardware. It's just to provide people another piece of hardware on which they can play games and work and spend money on your platform and put more time into your platform. And that's really, I think, what Valve is trying to do here. It's just trying to support gamers in more places so that they can play more games and spend more money on on Steam. And it's it's cool. It's a cool vision. Um, but again, I'm a little, I'm pretty skeptical that the uptake is going to be enough where um, Valve feels compelled to continue investing significant resources into improving it in really big ways. I could be wrong. I hope I am. Um, but that's that's kind of where I'm leaning right now. Yes, and with competitors in this market, for example, Backbone, where you can attach it to your smartphone, personally, I'd be a lot more willing to pay an extra price to have a very good smartphone because it does multiple things, one of them being games, and then being able to transform it into a, a controller so I can play um, more competitive games, perhaps, than spending this a similar amount of money buying a specific handheld console that that's the only purpose I have for it is to play games. Yeah, we'll, we'll wait and see. I think hopefully we'll see throughout this year how, how the sales go. We'll have more reviews coming in and we'll, we'll see. Oh, I, I forgot that actually Valve made a, they reached out saying that they'd love to have Game Pass on, on Steam. What, what do you think about it, Aaron? Do you think we'll uh, see it? I'm sure they would love it. And actually I, I don't, I don't know if uh, Microsoft would be that opposed because, um, you know, really their goal is to be everywhere um, on every device, accessible in many ways. Um, it's not really about selling the most exclusive consoles anymore. Um, it's about maximizing the number of subscribers. That's really the key metric. Maximizing the number of players and playtime across games is probably what they're most looking for. And so if working with Steam unlocks, you know, pretty tremendous upside for them, I wouldn't be shocked to see them be open to it, depending on what the terms were. Um, but, you know, I don't know if the terms will be agreeable enough with them to justify also being on Steam when they already have their own platform, essentially on PC already. So we'll see. But, you know, we've seen with other companies um, like EA, their EA origin subscription service, I think it's called. Um, that is on Steam, I think, where you can purchase it. And that one's also in Game Pass, too. So that's a wonky one. But there is some there is some precedent to other subscription services being sold on Steam. And um, Steam, again, has over 100 million monthly active users. So it's a pretty enormous user base to tap into to help accelerate whatever subscription service you're on um, can ultimately become. So yeah, I think it's interesting. It'll just come down to the to the terms associated with it, I think. Awesome. Well, looking forward to this year and seeing how, how it goes. Maybe some exciting news about Game Pass on, on Steam. Yeah, I actually... I actually don't know if it's also only about like the games or the subscription. I think those are really important components. I think what we didn't talk about and what's important to note is the underlying infrastructure behind these peripherals. So 
Steam Deck has like presumably all the Steam integrations that games love, Steam Chat, whatever that like people want to use and want to uh, use to play with their friends. And I think that's part of what makes the Steam experience so good. Backbone, I think, is like a hundred dollar subscription for like social features. If I'm not mistaken, or it could be free. I forget, but. That like implies that you have to have the Backbone app downloaded to be able to use it. And I think that's like a tough proposition based on where the company is at right now. Not to say that they won't get there, but like I think people would rather use Discord or like a bunch or bunch before <laughs> they pivoted to the metaverse stuff. Um, and then like secondarily, which I think is an important point, is this a- Apple platform tax. Steam also has a platform tax, but like what does it mean to de-platform or get off of Apple, right? And so like we've seen this play out with a company called TapTap in uh, China. And so they basically created a way for people to download games outside of the App Store. And Steam is effectively allowing people to do that on their platform. And I think also Backbone might have that potential as well to like take games off of Apple, give them a way to, for people to download through their peripherals whatever that might mean. And I think that's like a really interesting avenue to maybe explore at some point um, for these companies. You're effectively bypassing a 30% tax and maybe making the marketplace a little bit cheaper for apps that want to be on there. That's why I'm sure Xbox is very happy to integrate with Steam, um, aside from wanting to be everywhere. That's so interesting. And um, again, like I, I mentioned before, like in the same way over the past 20 years, we've seen form factors change um, with handheld gaming, I think we'll continue to see them change. And it really wouldn't be surprising that as, again, like more of these big platforms, they start bundling into subscriptions and cloud gaming becomes, you know, slowly more viable that all of these platforms will want to support um, players being able to play on any device. And um, I think that what that could mean is that we'll start to see, um, you know, Backbone could even get competition from like an Xbox or a PlayStation that launches their own controllers that can connect to um, phones or even, you know, come up with their own tablet kinds of things that, you know, you can attach to, you know, a controller that uh, the games stream to that don't cost $600 because it's, it doesn't run on the device. It's running from the, the cloud. Um, and so I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm really excited. None of this is going to happen like this year. I think that, but over the next five to 10 years, I think we're going to see, this is going to be a space that I think is going to get more interesting. It's, it still is pretty small in the big scheme of things, but, um, you know, in some ways the switch was like really onto something when it kind of launched in the way it did. And I think that, you know, Nintendo is normally behind <laughs> when it comes to, um, you know, how they run their platforms and, you know, what exactly the switch is. That's also going to change over time, too. And not everybody's going to replicate that. But the idea that you can play the same games in multiple ways um, being supported by these leading platforms, I think that, yeah, that's going to that's going to become more of a thing. And it's just a question of which companies have the resources and abilities to execute well on it. How are partnerships going to form between all of these to, you know, let certain subscriptions be available on certain other devices? Um, And those are all big questions, but it's going to be really exciting to see all of that um, come to fruition in the next few years. 
Well, with that exciting yes. look ahead into the future, we are going to have to wrap up the roundtable today. Unless, Fuzzy, you seem like you wanted to say something. Is it very important? No, I'm just, I'm, I want to pose a question. Is Backbone allowed in tournament settings? Because, you know, it seems like a cheat code that I'd love to use as a, <laughs> as a person who can't game very well. Um, I'm just yeah, messing. But yeah, Maria, it's such a pleasure. Thanks for hosting. Thanks for joining. And I don't have many friends, and that's why I forgot about the social features of Backbone. Um, but on that note, if you want to make my day, you have our email in the in the show notes. <laughs> so send us an email. Let us know what you thought about the episode and the Metacast as a whole. We'd love to hear from you. And um, yeah, we'll wrap up the roundtable there. This was the Metacast by Navic, and we'll see you next week. Yeah.